Welcome back to Graceway DC, a weekly podcast bringing you sermons from the pulpit of Graceway Baptist Church of Washington, DC. For this week's sermon, Pastor Brad continues in his mini-series on the tabernacle. Last week we studied the veil. Today's focus is the brazen altar, also known as the altar of burnt offerings. This piece was a familiar one to the Israelites. We should be familiar with it too. Let's join Pastor Brad as he opens the word. Take your Bibles if you would. Let's go to Exodus chapter number 27. We've been walking through chapter by chapter, truth by truth, through the incredible uh, books of Moses. And the books of Moses are often called the Torah. That's five books. Genesis, Exodus, that's the one we're studying, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And the book of Exodus is three great truths. The first one is the exit or escape from Egypt. The second one is the Ten Commandments. And the third one is the giving of the, of the tabernacle. And it's interesting because the tabernacle has 50 chapters uh, allocated to the description of a tent just an old gray tent in the desert. Or is it? And there is a whole lot more to this tent. Intricate, intricate detail about this place that is called the meeting place of God and man. Now, if you remember, God made the first sanctuary for Adam and Eve called the Garden of Eden, and God would walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. It's interesting because God would come and walk with them. Adam and Eve couldn't go to heaven or go where God was. God would meet with them and walk with them. Of course, they sinned, got kicked out of the Garden of Eden, and um, the uh, uh, the cherubim guarded the way uh, back into the Garden of Eden with that flaming sword. We studied that last week a little bit. And now man is without. Man is without God, without direction. And so man pretty much finds his own way and wrestles with what he wants to do and says, well, this is what I believe and this is my truth. And, and that thought process is called humanism. Now, sometimes we use the word humanism in a way of I'm concerned about others like humanitarian aid or something like that. And, and that's good. We need to be con, uh, concerned about others and their welfare. But humanism is the religion, the belief that I can ascend. I can go up to God. If it's meant to be, it's up to me. And this plays out in every society. We're in the Western society, and the Western society is laced with humanism. Now, in some ways, that, that's good, because it puts human responsibility upon ourselves. And that's good. We need to be held responsible. As a matter of fact, the judgment seat of Christ and the white throne judgment, two judgments uh, before God that are detailed in the Bible, make no sense unless man has responsibility. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are responsible. You are responsible. God holds you responsible. <laughs> and, uh, the tabernacle is really a pattern. As a matter of fact, the Bible says over and over again that Moses and his people 
are to build the tabernacle according to the pattern of God, the pattern of God. Now, I believe this is my fourth time teaching and preaching through the tabernacle in the 30 years that I've been a preacher. But to my shame, I just followed all the preachers before me, and and it always starts with the brazen altar, the brazen laver, the golden table of showbread, the golden menorah or the uh, lampstand, the golden altar of incense, the and then within the, the veil and the holy of holies is the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat on top. Those seven uh, pieces of furniture all lined up. And this is the way to God. And as I'm submitting to the word of God and I'm saying, God, you are my director. I want to see things your way. And I have read over and over and over as I'm reading this according to the pattern. Moses, make sure you do it according to the pattern. Make Moses, make sure that all the people do it according to the pattern, according to the pattern. And as I'm talking about various things, I'm noticing I've got to jump from this chapter to that chapter to the other chapter. Am I following the pattern? And I was praying. I told you this a little bit last week. Lord, up, show me, lead me. And I was waiting for a, an emotional feeling, a mystical light. There was no feeling, there was no light. And all of a sudden I just said, well, let's look back at the book. And I looked in the book and it wasn't according to what I thought. And it went chapter by chapter, piece by piece. And I went, that's what I'm supposed to do. And I want to submit to the word of God. I believe that this is God's direction book for life. And when all else fails, read the directions. And so we want to follow. It does no good to read the directions and then forsake them. We've got to follow the word of God. So we are in Exodus chapter number 27. And we have uh, the, uh, the seventh message here. And this is the message that Messiah is our payment. This is about the brazen altar or the sacrificial altar. It's representative of the sacrificial death of Messiah. Now, the Bible presented both in type and specifics that we will see that God is concerned about his people, just as we sang several different times, God's concerned. And one of the the devil's sharpest, most fiery weapon into your heart will be God doesn't love you. God doesn't care about your emotions and your feelings and your loneliness and your failures. God is big and he's great and he has millions of subjects. And why would he be concerned about little old me and my failure once again? I have felt that dart. How many of you have felt that spear in your life? Well, sure. Sure. And see, the tabernacle says God is very concerned. And God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be a propitiation for our sin, an appeasement, a payment, a sacrifice. And it's Christ our payment today. See, this brazen altar is this great big brass grill that on it would be a lamb or a bullock, which is a young bull, or a goat or a turtle dove. There's five different major categories of sacrifices and offerings, and all of them point to the Messiah 
suffering for you and for me. Christ our payment. One of the things my dad would say to me when I was late for something, how many of you had a dad that was just on your case about being late or unprepared? All right. And my dad, oh, my dad. Now my mom was kind of wild and crazy and she's like, let's do all this stuff and just kind of all over the place. Now my dad is very regimented and this is what we do and this is the plan, stick to the plan. And so one of the insults that would be hurled my direction if I was late or unprepared is he'd say, Brad, are you a day, you're, a, you're a day late and a dollar short. And that was a stinger right there. But it was helpful. And in no way do I hold that against my dad. Don't think that. I'm not a wounded citizen here. I'm saying that that was helpful. Because I think a lot of people are going to get to heaven. And they're going to be a day late and a dollar short when the full payment was made by Christ. And it was costly. And that's what this brazen altar speaks of. The sacrificial death of Messiah. Now, sometimes you might think, now, wait a minute. We are talking, we're going through all these things and they, let's see, the first one was a picture of Christ and then, picture of Christ, picture of the Messiah, picture of, is everything about Christ here? That's a great question. I want you to remember Jesus after he rose from the dead and he was walking with two people and they didn't really recognize him because the Bible says he had, he had closed their ability to perceive him and he's walking with them. By the way, where was he walking with them to? Do you remember? Emmaus, the Emmaus road, and he's walking with them. And the Bible says this in Luke 24, verse number 26. Let's bring that up here. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? In other words, these two people, and really all of Jerusalem was all upset about this guy named Jesus. By the way, the whole world is still upset about this guy named Jesus. And Christ is saying, as they don't recognize him, you don't know that he was supposed to suffer. Messiah was supposed to. How can you not know that Christ was supposed to suffer? And beginning at where? Moses and all the prophets. Moses was, was a prophet. He wrote five books, the, the Pentateuch, the Torah, and that's Exodus. He expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It says all the scriptures. Jesus is in all the scriptures. He's, he's everywhere. He's all over the place. This week, as you read the Bible, and that is a habit, if you don't have that habit, I would say one of the most important elements is to get in and feed on the word. Now, don't make the mistake of thinking, oh, I read the Bible, and so I know it. So There is a part of the Bible that's about information. It's intellectual. There's a part of that. That's true. But it is spiritual light. It is spiritual food. It is spiritual water. It is nutrients that you need to feed on every day. And if you don't, you'll find a substitute. Just like me, when I, when I walk in the house and I'm hungry, if there's good food, I'll usually go to the good food. But if I look and I don't see good food, there's always option B. And that is garbage. 
And my, my wife and kids do a good job trying to hide all the garbage and throw it away, but somehow it all gets back in there again. How many of you know what I'm talking about there? And if you don't feed on the Word of God, you will start feeding on all the junk, the humanism, the self-help around, when real sustenance, the eternal words of Christ, is available to you. Now, I like reading commentaries, and this week I read several commentaries on about five or six chapters of uh, Exodus. And one interesting thing was done by um, uh, a famous Jewish man, Dennis Prager. How many of you know Dennis Prager? Sure. He, he lives in L.A. He's on the radio every day, and uh, he comes to D.C. a few times a year, and I've had the privilege to meet him and, and uh, communicate with and talk to him. I've, I've done a little video interview with him that was really cool, and he refers to me as that preacher in D.C., so I like that. That's great. But here's what he said in his little commentary, uh, which is called the Rational Bible. By the way, his view on Judaism, rational, is the ancient view of the Sadducees. And in the Bible, you read about the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And the Sadducees didn't take it uh, specifically, uh, literally. They took it very uh, rationally. They took it uh, as self-help and just kind of take it as um, kind of uh, just general advice. But anyways, a great truth he wrote in his uh, commentary, nothing worthwhile comes without sacrifice. Which is, which is absolutely true, and hold on to that. But it is so thin, it is so flimsy compared to the rich, wonderful truth that the brazen altar or the sacrificial altar presents. Now, I want to give you three points, just really super simple. Sometimes I give kind of big, clumsy uh, sermons with all these points. This is simple, okay? Simple. How it was made where it was placed, and why it was there. So three very simple things that answer these questions. The first question, how was it made? And Exodus chapter 27 is going to launch it out. This will be the first eight verses, and here we go. And thou shalt make an altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be four squares. And the height thereof shall be three cubits. And thou shalt make the horns of it upon the four corners thereof. His horns shall be of the same. And thou shalt overlay it with brass. And thou shalt make his pans to receive his ashes, and his shovels, and his basins, and his flesh hooks, and his fire pans, and all the vessels thereof thou shalt make of brass. And thou shalt make for it a grate of network of brass, and upon the net thou shalt make four brazen rings in the four corners thereof. Thou shalt put it under the compass of the altar beneath, and the net be even in the midst of the altar. And thou shalt make staves for the altar, staves of acacia wood, and overlay them with brass. And the staves shall be put into the rings, and into the staves shall be upon the two sides of the altar to bear it. Hollow with boards shalt thou make it, as it was showed thee in the mount, so shall they make it. 
This is the first article of furniture there in the sanctuary made of brass. And it's very interesting. This is the biggest, the most prominent. This is the one that all the people would see. And God said, make it out of brass. The rest was made out of what? Gold. How was this made? In verse number one, you can see that it's five by five by three. Very specific measurements. Now, the number five in the Bible has to do with grace. But it also has something to do with death. In Genesis chapter 5, in verse number 5, the first man, Adam, died. In Acts chapter 5, in verse number 5, Ananias and Sapphira died. Five is the number of death and grace. And the number three is the divine number. And God said, let us go down and there confound their languages in Genesis chapter number 11. The divine number. So five and five by three. That is, Messiah dies to secure grace. Death, grace, and God. It's brass and wood. Now, wood, we've developed that thought a little bit in the past, but just by way of review, wood speaks of, anybody remember? Humanity, that's right. Remember in Psalm 1, and he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. When Jesus healed the the blind man, and he, he didn't quite see straight, Jesus said, what do you see? He says, I see men as trees walking. That's, that's interesting. That's curious. In Isaiah 53, it speaks of the Messiah, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of the dry ground. See, humanity is like a tree attached to the earth, and they live, we live, as we are attached here to the earth. You lose that attachment and you perish. So it's made out of wood, but it's also made out of brass. Brass, right throughout the Bible, is emblematic of judgment. Judgment. That is, humanity would under judgment. That's exactly what the brazen altar shows. Humanity under judgment. In 2 Corinthians 5, in verse number 21, it says, For he, God, hath made him, Christ, to be sin for us. Who knew no sin? Jesus didn't sin. He knew no sin. That we might be made the what? The righteousness of God in Christ, in him. See, Christ became sin for you and for me. And it's pictured here in the first, the first piece of furniture as we walk in to the tabernacle. Now, it's brass, it's wood, and it has horns. Now, not car horns, okay? That's, um, that's a different thing, that we have those in D.C., but that's not what they had in the desert there. This is much like an, an animal horn, which is a symbol of its power, a symbol of power. Thursday night, we studied uh, end times and 
in Daniel chapter 7 and verse number 8, it spoke of ten horns and a little horn that grew up in the middle of these ten horns. And we're like, what in the world's all this? And how it's a picture of ten great nations that form an alliance that gives rise to the Antichrist, that is the devil's Superman, that unites the globe and brings globalism and a world power under one man's uh, under one man's hand. So the, these horns are a symbol of power, but uniquely, these horns are to be covered in blood. Uh, we'll see in just a few minutes that these, as the uh, sacrifice was made, the priest was to take that blood of that sacrifice and put it on the horns there of that altar. Now, in Psalm 118, verse number 27, it mentions the horns of the altar, but I would like to start by reading Psalms 118, and I want to start reading in verse number 19, kind of work our way up there. And this is a picture of the sanctuary. This is a song that's been sung. It's a poem. It's Hebrew poetry, and it's been sung for thousands of years, over 3,000 years. Verse number 19, open to me the gates of righteousness. Now that's key, the gates of righteousness. We don't have time to develop that, but maybe in the future. I will go into them, and I will praise the Lord. This gate of the Lord into which the righteous shall enter. I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me, and art become my salvation. That's what the tabernacle is for, and that's what this brazen altar of sacrifice is for, the salvation of you and me. Elbow your neighbor and say, it's for you. It's for you. That's what it's about. And verse number 22, the stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. What in the world? This is a prophecy back in the book of Psalms about Jesus Christ, who is the chief cornerstone that the builders, the Jewish people, rejected. But he still became the headstone of the corner. What? The church. It's the gates of righteousness. This is incredible. Look at um, verse 23. Who did this? This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Now, I grew up singing that song and dancing around the house, and I always thought it was talking about today. Today's the day that God made, and I'm going to be happy today, which is a good application. Some of you need that application, I'll tell you that. But it's talking about the day of salvation. It's talking about the day that Christ opens the door, the gate, to righteousness, and I can come in and walk with him. Verse number 25, Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Now, <laughs> there is all kinds of confusion about this word prosperity. Does that mean money? Does that mean affluence? Does that mean a new uh, car? Does that mean a new Rolex? Uh, no, actually, the context of it means righteousness. It means the blessing and the favor of God in eternal things. And you know what? Temporal things are not bad, but they're not eternal. 
and they're not that valuable to God. If you want to know if you're really rich, I mean, if you really have wealth, you need to add up all the things that money can't buy and death can't take away. And that's real wealth. Real wealth. That is prosperity. Look at verse number 26. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. That's what they sang to Jesus the week before they crucified him on Palm Sunday. Verse 27, God is the Lord, which hath showed us light. Here it is. Don't miss it. Bind the sacrifice with cords, even unto the horns of the altar. All of this song about the gates of righteousness, this is the day, this is the Messiah, the, the stone which the builders rejected, all of this is tied to the picture of the altar. This is the brazen altar of sacrifice in the tabernacle, later in the temple there in Jerusalem, and it's tied to the horns. All of this is a picture of the ultimate place of sacrifice, Golgotha and Calvary, when the Lamb of God would hang there on the cross and pour out his blood for you and for me to enter into the gates of righteousness. That's what it's all about. And how can we doubt that God loves us? And how can we allow the spear of Satan and despondency to enter into our vitals when we have the armor of God and we have the light of his word and we have the knowledge that God sent his son to die for you and me. It's an amazing thing. By the way, it is a mind game that the devil is going to try to play on you and you need to feed on the word. And when you do, the spirit of God will unlock the eternal truths of God and reveal them to you line upon line, bit by bit little by little. I thought when I was a 20-year-old kid that I surrendered when I um, gave up business and business college to, uh, to be a pastor. And I, I said, this is what I'm going to do. I thought the word of God would be unlocked and it would all be there before me. And I would just have this huge smorgasbord of truth. What I have found is God just gives me a little bit and a little bit and a little bit, and I study, and I can study and get nothing. But intellectual things, I can get that. But where is this eternal truth? It's right here. But as I submit to God and consecrate my life to Him, He gives me a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And this year, and, and I'm 30 years preaching the word. God gave me a little bit more. And even this week, I'm like, what? I never saw this before. And God said, just wait, there's more. There's more. I mean, there's so much in the word of God. Listen, you are wise. The most important thing you will do this week is meet with God. Make an appointment and keep your appointment with God. And get in there, submit to him, and feed on his word. Meet with God. Don't miss your appointment. Tell your neighbor, don't miss your appointment with God. Don't miss your appointment. I mean, you can miss a lot of appointments, but don't miss an appointment with God. Man alive. 
Now, there's one other thing I want to tell you about um, how this altar was made. Is it's uh, it's square. It's it's five by five by three, and uh, it's the biggest. It's made of brass and wood, and it's got these four horns there on the on the corners, and they're and they're covered with with blood. And it's speaking of sacrifice. It's speaking of opening the gates of righteousness into God. And the question comes up, is this only for the Jewish people? Is this only for these people? Remember our little study of numbers. What is the number four? Does anybody remember that? That's the number of the, that's the number of the earth. That's exactly right. The Bible speaks of four winds and the, speaks of the four directions of the compass, north, south, east, and west. And that's where we get the word news from the four corners, N-E-W-S, north, East, West, Sarah, news. That's where that word comes from, news. And it speaks of God's grace, God's love, God's word going out to the four corners of the world. Now, it's not saying that the earth is a cube or a square. It's, it's saying that there's four points to the compass. In Acts chapter 1, in verse number 8, we have this command, "...but ye shall receive power." After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in where? Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Listen, God loves people. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. It is incorrect for us to say there's different races. Listen, there's one race. The human race, God made Adam and Eve and their children, their offspring happened to be a little bit like this and a little bit like that. And they grouped together in various places. It's true. It's true. But God sees past the outside of that tent and don't be so superficial and group people together in these external things. Listen, God loves people. He does. God loves the people of Israel. God loves the people of Gaza. God loves the people in China. God loves the people in your neighborhood. God loves your next-door neighbor. And you are to be an evangelist filled with the love of God and the Spirit of God and take the good news that somebody died for them to their hearts, to their ears. So we've talked about how was it made. Let's go secondly to the, the second question here. Where was it placed? Well, it was placed at the door of the tabernacle. We're in uh, Exodus uh, 27. I want you to just turn over uh, a page or two there to verse uh, to chapter 29, Exodus chapter 29. And I want you to notice verses 11 and 12. Now, this is speaking of a, a sacrifice that is to be made. Now, we've already went over. There's five major sacrifices that are to be made. One's with a bull, one's with a lamb, one's with a goat, one's with a, a bird, a turtle dove it's called, and, um, and there's some other uh, elements, a meal offering and such. But this is the one with a bullock, and a bullock is simply a young, a young bull. In verse number 11 it says, And thou shalt kill the bullock before the Lord, and notice those next three words say with me, by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And thou shalt take the blood of the bullock and put it upon the horns of the altar with thy finger and pour all the blood beside the bottom of the altar. 
Where was it placed? It's by the door. The very first thing that you would see in your approach to God as you came into this very small sanctuary, this tabernacle, this tent area, was the brazen altar of sacrifice. And you would come in to the in between the first curtain and you would enter into that blue and purple and scarlet colored curtain, not called the veil, but the hanging curtain. And you would come in. The very first thing you would see is this large altar of brass. And on that altar of brass would be that animal sacrifice. And there would be fire and there would be smoke. And around it, there would be blood. This is not a neat, tidy, clean thing. And this is the approach to God. Now, we're having church. And um, I don't actually like wearing suits and ties. I do this out of reverence for the Word of God. I'm more comfortable in other things, but I think as the preacher here before you, I need to show great respect. If I'm meeting with somebody this week, I'm going to put on a suit and I'm going to throw on a tie and, and I'm going to try to do that. And I'm, and I'm not saying this is, the, this is what everybody should do, but I think when you're presenting the Word of God in official capacity, I think, I think there's, there's something to it. It's not mandated by Scripture or something like that, but it, it, it's there in my heart. And that approach to God should be done in a clean, attractive way. So I might not be attractive, but I'm trying to be attractive. Okay, I'm trying. <laughs> but here's my point. This first element that you saw was not attractive. It was gory. There's blood. There's dirt and dust. There's no covering on the floor. They weren't allowed to put a covering. It was dust. And, and there's smoke. And they're not processing the animal somewhere else and bringing, you know, the sacrificial parts in to be burned before the Lord in a really tidy place. They're doing it right there in front of everybody. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, if you wanted to come in, you would walk in and you would bring your lamb or your bullock with you. And you would come in or your turtle dove or whatever it was. And the priest would be there with his knives and these little basins and stuff to catch the blood. And you would put your hand on that animal. And there would be a transfer of your sin and transgression and the innocence of that animal. And there is an exchange. And it's all, that's a temporary picture of the eternal solution, Jesus Christ. And when Christ hung there on the cross and poured out his blood with his hands open wide, he was ready to make an exchange with you. And so you can receive the righteousness of God. And what do you have? Well, you have the sin and you hand that to the perfect son of God. And he took your sin and he took my sin and it was, it was a bloody religion. Now, I'll tell you what. We try to go out of our way to make it as nice as possible coming into church. Uh, we had a setup team, several setup teams. And 
little flags out there and cleaning things up and tidying stuff up. And several of our ladies and men are picking up all this and over there. And we've got a little coffee and water and, and all this stuff. And then we're, you know, we're doing our best. But listen, the approach to God, there's an element of gore to it. And there's a danger in cleaning up the cross of Christ. Many people have, you know, a, a beautiful golden cross necklace or a bracelet or a ring. And I'm not opposed to that. But that cross is a gory thing. It's an instrument of execution. And it's placed right there at the door. It's symbolic of access and fellowship with God. There is no access to God. There is no fellowship with God without the death, without the blood of the Lamb. And every priest had to walk past it. So we've answered the first question, how was it made? We've answered the second question, where was it placed? Well, it was placed right there at the door, right in front of God and everybody. And now number three, why was it there? Why was it there? Well, it is to show the penalty for sin is death. The penalty for sin is death. We're in Exodus 29. We're looking at this offering. And I want you to see this in verse number 13. And thou shalt take all the fat that covereth the inwards, and the caul that is above the liver, and the two kidneys, and the fat that is upon them, and burn them upon the altar. But the flesh of the bullock, and his skin, and his dung, shalt thou burn with fire without the camp. It is a what? It's a sin offering. This is all about sin. Sir, you don't have a problem that isn't a sin problem. Ma'am, your only problem is a sin problem. Now, we're here in Washington, D.C., and there's all sorts of campuses that are detailing perceived problems. Here's a problem. There's racial problems. Here's another problem. There's inequality problems. There's educational problems. There's zip code problems. There's emotional problems. There's mental problems. There, and we could detail a hundred different problems and provide data to back them up. But the real problem is sin. Your problem and my problem is sin. The heart of the matter, the heart of the problem, is a problem with the heart that's filled with sin. It's a sin offering. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse number 22, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood and without the what? Shedding of blood is no remission. We know this word remission. We just don't think of it in religious terms. We think of it in medical terms. And I've, I've got cancer. Now I've got I had this treatment, and now my cancer is in remission. What does that mean? It means um, its attack, its aggression is stopped. It might still be there, but it is, it is stopped. It might be eradicated, and we're just hoping it doesn't come back. It's in remission. It's no longer on its mission. It's been turned back. It's been thwarted. It's been stopped. Sin in our hearts and lives must be stopped. And Christ died to save us from our sin. 
And when Christ dies to save us from our sin, he also saves us from the punishment of sin, which is hell. But there are thousands of people, more than thousands, that say, I'm a Christian, I'm saved, I'm born again, but they have no remission of sin. They bask in their sin. They wallow in their sin. They say, Christ died for my sin. Well, yes, Christ died to save you from your sin, not just the penalty of your sin, but the sin itself, so that you can be free, so that you can live a righteous and holy life. You have no problem, but what is a sin problem? And Christ died to save you from your sin problem. Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I want to ask you this question. Who killed Jesus? Well, it was those cruel hands, strong hands, that held that iron hammer that drove those spikes into the quivering hand of my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a Roman spear that thrust his side. It was Roman hands that made a crown of thorns, jammed it on his head, beat it down with a little reed. But it was Jewish voices and cries that said, crucify him. Give us Barabbas. And it was the sin of the world, my sin and yours, my lies, my self-righteousness, my covetousness that nailed Christ to the cross. Who killed Jesus? You know, there's even a stronger truth than the Jews, the Gentiles, the Romans. And that is, God killed Jesus. I want to show you this in Leviticus 9. Now, we've studied Exodus 27 and 29. And the danger of giving too much scripture is that you kind of, you forget what's going on. So Exodus 27 is the presentation of this um, altar of sacrifice. And then we looked at some of the details of it in chapter 29. Leviticus 9 is actually the first offering, and they're carrying out um, this exact procedure. And in verse number 23, it says this, And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of the congregation and came out. Now, that is very significant. They went in, they slew the young bull, they prepared everything the way God had said, we, the way we just read. And they came out and blessed the people. Now they're outside the tent. They're blessing the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the people. And there came a fire out from before the Lord and consumed upon the altar, that's that brazen sacrificial altar, the burnt offering and the fat, which when all the people saw, they shouted and fell on their faces. Now, that is true reverence and worship right there. The holiness and the grandeur of God. Leviticus chapter number 9. In other words, God sent the fire. God sent the fire. You know, Jesus didn't cry out when his hands were nailed. Jesus didn't cry out when the whip lashed his back. Jesus didn't cry out when they ripped out his beard. 
Jesus didn't cry out. And they spit upon him, smote him. They blindfolded him and hit him. Who struck you? Jesus knew. (laughs) Not only knew who they were, he knew who their father was and their grandfather and their great-grandfather. He knew everything. And Jesus laid down his life. I want you to see this in Acts 4. Acts chapter 4 and verse 27. Acts 4, 27. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, so that's the Romans, with the Gentiles, that's pretty much the rest of the people of the world, and the people of Israel, that's the Jews, that's the three groups of people, were gathered together. Everybody's there. Who killed Jesus? Verse 28. For to do whatsoever thy hand, speaking of God, and thy counsel determined before to be done. Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Abraham said, God will provide himself a lamb. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And God planned this to rescue me and you from our sin. God laid down his life, the life of his son, Jesus, on the cross. Now, don't think that this is just a Christian doctrine. This is a Jewish doctrine. I want you to go to Isaiah 53, the book of Isaiah, chapter number 53. And I'm mindful of the time. I hope everybody's tracking with me. We'll be, we'll be let out in just a minute. Isaiah 53. This is a great prophecy. More than 700 years before Jesus about the Messiah. Who's the Messiah? Isaiah 53. Verse number one, I would like to just read right through this chapter. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he, speaking of the Messiah, shall grow up before him as a tender plant. And as a root out of a dry ground, he hath no form nor comeliness. Means Jesus wouldn't, or the Messiah wouldn't be physically attractive or, you know, super handsome. And when we shall see him, There is no beauty that we should desire him. Verse 3. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. Now see it. This is is us. Take it really personal. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, that is whiplashings, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who put the the sin of the world on Jesus? The Lord. God did. 
Verse 7, He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He didn't complain. Oh, he was strong. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, quiet, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Look at verse 10. Incredible. Now focus your attention. Don't let your mind wander. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Don't think God is angry at the Jews or the Romans or the Gentiles. This was God's plan, executed perfectly. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. God loves me. God loves you so much. He wants to bring you into his presence and into his righteousness and to his prosperity. Not our crazy definition of prosperity. His prosperity. That it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin... He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. That's another name for the Messiah, the righteous servant. For he shall bear their iniquities. Now that, it's not left up to conjecture. How does somebody bear someone else's iniquities? It's the brazen altar. It's the altar of sacrifice. Uh, verse number 12. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made Intercession for the transgressors. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And the brazen altar is a picture of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. How dare I think I'm alone? How dare I think God doesn't notice? He sent his darling son. He sent the eternal Lamb of God to take away my sin and yours. This week live for God. Live for Him. If you're here today and by your own merit, by your own strength, by your own self-worth, you are trying to ascend before God and become worthy of heaven, you cannot. That's an insult. You will always be a day late and a dollar short. What you must do is accept the eternal and final sacrifice made by Jesus Christ he died for you. God did provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. Jesus did present himself as the lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. 
Jesus Christ was lifted up on the cross. Which is what the word altar means. It means to lift up for you and for me. Don't settle with your sin. Don't make a peace treaty with your corruptive way. Say, God, your son died to redeem me and to give re me remission of my sin. And if sin is still plaguing you and haunting you and stomping you, right now cry out to God, God, I pray for salvation. I pray for deliverance from my deceit or whatever sin it is. Name it. Name it before God. God, save me from this. Don't just think God saves from the penalty of sin, hell. Oh, he does. But he saves right now from sin. You can be set free from lust and lying. You can be set free from idolatry. You can be set free from covetousness. It's through Jesus, the eternal Lamb of God, the sacrifice for sin. Let's stand to our feet with our heads bowed, eyes closed. We've already started the invitation. And what I want you to do is from your, the very center, the very core of your, of your being, your soul, the throne room of your heart, saying, God, I want you to rule and reign in righteousness from my life. Now, eventually, God will rule and reign from Jerusalem. The Bible declares that. But he's not there. God is not on the throne of Jerusalem. But he can be and he wants to be on the throne room of your heart. Dethrone self. Dethrone popular psychology or society and enthrone the Savior of the world. Right now by prayer, say, God, I want you to rule and reign in my heart. By faith, I turn from my sin. I am turning from my sin right now, and I am trusting Jesus, the Messiah, the Lamb of God, who gave his life's blood for me. Claim it, he gave it for me. And God saved me and helped me to walk with you and help me to live for you. And God help me to speak for you. Help me to stop being so distracted with trivial little things. Oh God, help me to see the eternal. I'm so limited. Oh God, help me to see past the physical. Would you pray that now? Save me. Lord, I thank you for saving me. I thank you for the Lamb of God. Lord, I thank you for the incredible lesson and the great truth of the altar of sacrifice, the brazen altar of sacrifice. It's a picture of humanity under judgment. It's the picture of the, the power of the blood. It's the picture of the first thing in coming to God, right at the door. Lord, thank you for dying for me. Lord, help me to live for you and never be ashamed of you. And I ask this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Graceway DC. If you find yourself in the DC area on a Sunday or Thursday, we'd love to see you in person for one of our church services. If you'd like more information about Graceway Baptist Church, visit gracewaydc.com to connect or discover what you're looking for. It's been great having you with us. We hope to see you next time on Graceway DC.